0: What a, what a graphic depiction, huh? Of just another of the many blessings and benefits that uh, Christ does for us. Uh, he is our protector and He is our provider. And that's not just something that is a part of His character in a flat, two-dimensional kind of way. Uh, but that is a part of the character of who Christ is that makes an incredible difference in our everyday lives. He's not just the protector and provider of the universe, but He's the protector and the provider of my life and of your life. And uh, we started last week on a series where we were talking about the awesomeness of our God and how the person of Jesus Christ is more than enough for all of our needs. And we did that by looking at these letters that Jesus wrote to seven real churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And in each of these letters that Jesus writes, he uses a different signature, a different calling card. He mentions and references a different part of his character, of who he is, so that each of these churches, going through different things, might be encouraged by part of the character of their God and Savior. And we talked about how each of those letters ends with the phrase let him who has an ear hear what the spirit says to the churches because though these messages were written to seven real churches in Asia I believe that there are seven things that Christ wants us to see about how the person of his character is more than enough for all of our needs. Last week we we began the series by sharing a number of testimonies on pieces of cardboard that talked about how the person of Christ had been more than enough for so many of our needs. And we focused last week on this idea of God's love. And how God loves us and that He's the God of spirit and He's the God who is with us so that we can know that our God desires a deep and a personal relationship with each of us. Uh, This week we're going to continue that idea by looking at another of the characteristics of God's love and faithfulness to us we look at how he provides daily experience for us of his grace and his faithfulness and so we're going to do that this morning by looking at another of the two letters to the churches but before we get there today uh, let's pray father I uh, thank you so much For the time that you have given us here. Father, I thank you for this place that you have set aside. And Father, once again, we do not believe in accidents. And so, Father, we don't believe that any of us are here this morning just by happenstance. We believe that we're here because you want us here. And we're going to look at your word because we believe that you have a message for us from your word today. Father, I pray that you would speak through me so that all of us, me included, might hear your word and your truth. And Father, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. But if I do say something, Father, that you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would quickly be forgotten. But any words that I share today, Father, that are your truth, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, and we would apply them in our lives. That we might leave today changed people, more into the image of your Son. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me share with you the political resume of one of our of somebody that maybe you know, maybe you've heard this or not. Uh, but this person, in a few years ago, had lost an effort to be a member of the House of Representatives. Several years later, that person ran for Senate. They were defeated there also. A few years after that, they ran for Senate again, and again they were defeated. That's part of this person's story. If we were to stop right there, what might be your conclusions about this individual? A failure? Lacked influence? Maybe somebody of little significance. Let me tell you a few other facts about this same person. They actually won a seat in the United States House of Representatives at one point. They became a national voice for the anti-slavery movement and finally became president of the United States of America. Same person different parts of the story. Uh, If you haven't figured it out already, that is this person that I'm speaking of is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln in 1832 lost a bid to be a member of the House of Representatives in the state of Illinois. And some 30 years later, he was President of the United States. You know, if we were to at any point in Abraham Lincoln's life or political career, had taken a snapshot, we might have said at that point that he was a failure politically or a person of little significance. But if we would have ever drawn that conclusion about the life of President Lincoln, then frankly, we just did not have enough of the facts. You know, when you think of the lives of Christians today, you look around at the lives of Christians that you know, you look at the way that Christians are related to and treated all over the globe. It might look like Christians are failures in this life. You might feel like a failure in this life. You might feel like, I have not earned enough money. I'm not healthy enough. I don't have enough prestige. I don't have enough influence. Whatever it might be, and for whatever reason it might be, But it's possible to look at the life of a Christian and take a snapshot of any single point in our lives and make conclusions such as failure or insignificant. But the reality is, if any of us were to draw that kind of a conclusion about the life of any Christian, and I mean any Christian that you know, if we were to draw that conclusion, frankly, we would be making a conclusion based on not all of the evidence. Because Jesus Christ reveals to us truth throughout the New Testament but focused this morning in a couple of letters he wrote to churches in Asia in the first century to remind them that there's more to the story, that though their lives might look like failures in this life, and though their lives might look like they have little significance in this life, that there's more to the story and their lives are far more significant than that. Jesus Christ was offering them something more than they had ever known. And what he wanted them to know was that they, there was more going on than what was happening in this life. If Jesus is more than enough for all of our needs, he wants all of us to know, including the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia and Wildwood, that there is more that is happening than just what we see in this life. And this morning we're going to see two truths by looking at two letters and looking at the way Jesus signs those letters in Revelation two eight to eleven and three seven to thirteen. Uh, the first of those truths we're going to see is from two eight to eleven and deals with Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. Let me read that for us. In two eight to eleven it says this it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so Jesus writes this letter to the church in Smyrna. And he writes this letter basically to tell them this, that he desires, he desires that they have something more than just an external peace. He wants them to know that he has something better to offer them than just an external peace. And he's going to share that with them by revealing a part of his character. And the part of his character that he focuses in on is the fact that he is the first and the last The one who died and rose to life again. When Jesus says that he's the first and the last, what he's referring to is the fact that he is the eternal one. He's the one that's not bound by time. And that's really significant because if you were to zoom in on the life of Christ, think about his trial and his crucifixion. If you were to zoom in on that section of his life and take a snapshot, it might look as though he was defeated. But the reality is that no single snapshot can contain an eternal God. And there is way more to that story. He wasn't defeated at the cross. He rose victorious three days later. And so Jesus, the eternal one, the one who is not bound by any single photograph, says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and who rose again. What Jesus was saying was, I am the one who has defeated death. Whatever else is going on in your lives, one of the chief enemies that we all face is the enemy of death. One of the big things that all of us are fearful of is death. It's one of the chief enemies of our life. I don't know if any of you are MASH fans, uh, but I I used to watch the show MASH. You still can find it on reruns on TV land or whatever. Uh, But I was watching MASH one night. And uh, there was a scene where, where Hawkeye was in the operating room. If you're unfamiliar with the show, MASH is set in the Korean War in a mobile army surgical hospital. And, and Hawkeye is one of the surgeons, and he's, he's in working on a, a body, and, and, and he's in surgery, and the, and the person that he's working on is dying. And Hawkeye gets angry, and he begins pounding on the chest of the person that he's working on as he performs CPR, and he's saying, don't let him win, don't let him win and one of the people who is watching that battle turns to bj and says what's he what's he talking about who's who's him and bj replied him is death i think about that scene a lot because we're fearful of death we don't want death to win think of the of the, of the struggles if you if you've lost a loved one in any capacity Think about that battle as it headed towards the end. You just want, no, this can't end this way. It can't end this way, especially if you've lost somebody early in life, well before what we would consider to be their time. Death is an enemy. It's the thing that that makes us nervous. If you're a parent, you're concerned about the lifespan of your child. If you find out you have cancer, you're concerned about the, the length of your days. If you have a heart attack, you're, you're wondering what is on that other side of death. Death is a chief enemy that we face. It's the thing that is used to intimidate those who are persecuted and tortured. Death is an enemy. And death is an enemy that looks like it wins 100% of the time. But Jesus writes this letter to the church in Smyrna, and he says, Behold, I am the first and the last, the one who died but who rose again. I've defeated the biggest enemy that you face. I've defeated the enemy of death. Jesus wants the church in Smyrna to know that, and he wants us to know that. But the reason why he wants the church in Smyrna to know that is because Smyrna was going through some difficult things. Smyrna was being persecuted in this life in a fairly intense way. Look at what it says about them. It says, I know of your afflictions and your poverty. They were going through some difficult times. A lot of these difficulties that they were being persecuted with were at the hands of those who were of a Jewish descent. says those who were called Jews is how it's described in this passage but they were people that had grown up from a Jewish descent but had hated the things of Christ and were persecuting the followers of Christ all over the Roman Empire including in Smyrna and they were making life very difficult for those in Smyrna the Christians in Smyrna it, it says here they were in great poverty you know the Greek language has two words for for being poor there, there's the idea of being poor, like you got to roll together a roll of quarters to go buy a loaf of bread poor, meaning you can buy the bread, but it's bought with meager means. And then there was abject poverty. There's another word that's used to describe abject poverty, which means that you don't even have the quarters in, your, in, in the cup on your dresser to roll to go buy the bread. You have no possibility of getting out of this poverty. It's that poor. And the Christians in Smyrna are described with that word. They were in extreme poverty, the Christians in Smyrna. Now it may have been that they were in extreme poverty because of their faith in Christ. It might have been that because they professed faith in Christ that the city had made life very difficult for them, had persecuted them, and they'd lost their jobs without the ability to to gain any new income. Or it might have been that Christianity had just spread in this city among a group that was already very poor. We don't know exactly what the reason is. But we know that they were experiencing great affliction and that they were very poor. But the passage goes on. It says not just that they were experiencing great affliction and they were very poor, but that things were going to get worse. Jesus tells them that that things are getting ready to be worse. He says that, I tell you that the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution For ten days, up to this point, maybe no one had been imprisoned because of their faith in Christ, but Jesus says it's going to get worse. We know from historical records that a man named Polycarp was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And as Polycarp pastored in Smyrna, uh, we know that soon after this letter was written, he was going to be imprisoned, and eventually he would be martyred for his faith in Christ. You see, Smyrna was a rough place because they were experiencing affliction and they were poor. And now some of them were getting ready to be persecuted and thrown in prison. And and even their leader was going going to be killed because of his faith in Christ. You see, Smyrna was a difficult place. And to that difficult place, Christ writes and says, Remember, I am the Eternal One, the One who has conquered death. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid. You don't know what your week has held this past week. I don't know what your month has held this past month. But I know what some of you are going through. I've had a chance to pray with some of you in the last week. I've had conversations with you. Some of you have found out that there is drastic medical news hitting your family or uncertainty regarding medical issues. Some of you are going through marital difficulties and struggles. Uh, Some of you are, are, are going through issues of poverty and loss of job and income. I don't know what your week or day or month holds, but a number of you are going through some real difficulties in life. And you know what? Sometimes when we're going through these difficulties, we want immediately for all of the difficulties to be removed. We want to say, God, provide ample funds in my pocket. God, remove all illness from my life. God, remove all strife in every relationship that I have. We want external peace immediately. And yet to this church in Smyrna that was experiencing difficulty, Jesus writes and reveals himself as the eternal one, the one who was able to defeat the ultimate enemy. Death. He writes to say that no matter what you're facing right now, there is a hope for a future. Because on the other side of the grave, I won and you will too. And Christ offers that as encouragement. Uh, he also offers this as encouragement. Uh, we read this just a moment ago, but he says, Do not be afraid about your of, of a, excuse me, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And then he says this, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. You know, biblical scholars have debated that phrase, you will suffer persecution for 10 days, and have come to various conclusions. Some believe that that is referring to a literal 10 days, that the difficulty they were about to experience was going to last 10, 24-hour days. Others have looked at this and said that 10 days is a figurative expression of a limited, finite period of time. And while it's difficult to prove historically which that is, I think that for our sakes we can take great encouragement by the fact that whatever suffering, whatever difficulty we're going to go through in life, that it's going to be limited in scope. It's going to be limited in time. Compared to eternity, whether it's 10 hours or 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 years or a hundred years the difficulty we experience in this life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity because the God that we know is the eternal God and because the God that we know has conquered death and is offering us victory on the other side of the grave whatever difficulty we experience in this life even if it takes us all the way to the point of death will not win. That is a guaranteed promise from Christ. And that's so hard for us to grasp sometimes. It's hard for me to grasp because the difficulties that I experience are intense and they're close. And I want out immediately. And yet, from an eternal perspective, even if a struggle lasts a number of years, it's, relatively speaking, immediately removed because it doesn't stick with us when the days cease to be numbered in eternity. That's a truth that we can be encouraged by as we go through difficulty. He's the first and the last, the one who died but who rose again. I don't know if you're a note-taker, but if you're a note-taker, I would, I would encourage you to just write on your, on your piece of paper uh, your, your struggles, your trouble, your difficulty, whatever it is that you're going on in your life. Write it out. It, it might take a whole pad of paper, but write those things out. And then underneath it, as you might find on a tombstone, write the date that it began, and then put a dash. And then a question mark. You know what that's a reminder of for us? It's a reminder that it will one day end. I think one of the things that is so discouraging in the midst of despair is the thought that we will never get out from underneath it the thought that it will always be there, that it will always be attached to our name, that it will always drag us down, that that sorrow will always sit in the bottom of our hearts. But what this passage tells us is that there is an end, and on the other side of that end is victory. The one who is able to conquer death can give us victory today. And for some he will, and for some... Our difficulties will linger, but whatever it is, it will end one day, the day that we go to be with the Lord. He's the first and the last, the eternal one who has conquered death. First thing that we see from the letter to the church in Smyrna is that Jesus offers us more than just an external peace now. He offers us an eternal victory. But the second thing I think that we need to see comes from a letter to the church in Philadelphia, and that's over in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. See, Jesus writes this letter to the church in Philadelphia to tell them that he wants to give them something better, something more than just excessive prosperity, and this is what he says beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. Who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so to the city of Philadelphia. And to the church that exists there, Jesus writes another letter. And to them he reveals himself as the one who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. Now, that's a somewhat of a difficult uh, metaphor to unpack for us. Just at first read, it's difficult to understand what exactly he's talking about. But when you look at what was the key of David, you look at that from a biblical definition standpoint. Uh, the book of Isaiah in chapter 22 Beginning in verse 20, we get a little bit of a clue of that. And in Isaiah 22, verse, beginning in verse 20, it says, "...in that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open." I will drive him like a peg into a firm place, and he will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. And in in this way, uh, we get a little bit of a clue as to what this metaphor of the one who holds the keys of the house of David means. To the keys of the house of David, in a Jewish context, in a Jewish mindset, would have been the keys to the treasury to all the blessing that the king had. The one that held the keys to the treasury was able to open up that door and, and dump blessing upon whoever they chose or withhold blessing upon whoever they chose. The one that held the key held the blessing. And so when we read over in Revelation chapter 3 into the this church in Philadelphia, we find out that Jesus is now the one who holds the keys to the house of David. He's the one who is able to open the door of blessing or to shut it. He's the one who has all of the, 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 the blessings and the wealth of, of God, which are unlimited, and has the opportunity to bless those upon whoever he chooses. And, and furthermore, Jesus who holds those keys is someone who is holy and who is true. Now, that's significant. You want the one who holds all of the blessings at his disposal to be somebody who's not crooked, who's holy, and who's true, who always gets it right. In other words, Jesus, the one who holds all of the blessings at his disposal, gives them to whoever he chooses, and he always gets it right. That was an important thing for the church in Philadelphia to know and to understand. Because the church in Philadelphia, according to this passage, was a church of very little strength or significance. Look at what it says about this church in Philadelphia. It says this, says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. At first reading, that may sound like Jesus was criticizing this church. Oh, you have little strength. But in reality, I think what Jesus was saying to the church in Philadelphia was, you have little, you have little strength, you have little power. You're, you're a church of, of 25 people in a city of 1 million. Uh, th- think, think more of the church on your street corner that you know nothing about, as opposed to like Life Church Edmund, Right? Life Church Edmond was not a church of of little strength, it was a church of, of great strength in the sense that many people know about it, they're on billboards. But we all know that there are a number of churches in Oklahoma City that are small that nobody, unless you attend there, has ever even heard of. Those are churches that in a worldly standpoint we would say are of little strength, they're of little number, they're of little earthly significance. Sometimes we might be tempted to think that. Jesus writes this letter to a small church with seemingly little influence to remind them that he is the one who is able to bless everyone. And even though in their city they had little significance and they might have been tempted to think that they were a forgotten place on the map, that they were a forgotten congregation, Jesus writes to tell them that he is the one who is able to bless them. Listen to the ways that He encourages them. Jesus encourages them by saying that one day He would make all of those who are scoffing at them, that He would make them come and fall down at their feet and acknowledge that He loved them. He goes on and He says that one day this small church in Philadelphia that looked insignificant will be pillars, prominent front features in the temple of the living God. Jesus comes to this church that is seemingly insignificant, and he says, look, I'm the one that is able to bless and to reward, and one day your faithfulness to me will not be unnoticed. Because you're you're faithful to me, I will bless you and reward you in a way that you would never even dream, even if right now in this life you feel small and insignificant and overlooked. You know, that that is a powerful message that Christ gives to this church in Philadelphia. And I think it's a message that many of us need to hear as well. You know, it's possible to feel as though our lives go unnoticed and unrewarded from an earthly prosperity, whatever significance, uh, compared to those who are not following Christ. Maybe you're in a situation where at work you you work really hard and you do things right. You do your job to the best of your abilities. You don't cheat the company. You show up on time. You you stay late. You're a joy to be around in the office. But when it comes time for the promotion, the guy that's been cheating his expense reports for the last year gets the nod over you. When it comes time for the year-end bonus... The person that has been slacking off receives twice as much as you did. Does that ever happen? Yeah, it happens. When something like that happens, do you ever begin to think, hey, where is God in all of this? Hey, I'm, I'm doing things the way you want me to do, God, and yet the, the one who is, you know, quote-unquote, wicked or not doing things your way is seeming to prosper. And yet I'm seemingly just plodding along here without recognition. If that's your situation, if that's your case, remember that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the treasury of David. Remember that he's the one who says, even though you may be insignificant right now, that I will reward you later. Jesus takes notice of those things. And he's holy and true. He always gets it right. Maybe it's not with promotion or raise but maybe it's with recognition. Maybe you're faithfully serving Christ and doing things right and the person that's not gets all of the praise and recognition. You wonder, God, how is it that you're not catching this? If that's the case, then remember this. Jesus holds the keys of the treasury of David and one day he will make it all right. He wanted the church in Philadelphia to know that. And I think he wants us to know it as well. Jesus wants us to have more than just excessive prosperity in this life. He has something better to offer us. That something better is recognition by him one day. He will make it right. You know, one of the things that's significant to remember about the fact that he holds the keys to the treasury of David, is that that means that what he has chosen to give us, we have. What he has chosen to withhold from us, we don't have. And whatever it is, it's good. You know, my, my son right now is 16 months old. And uh, if you, those of you who have had a 16-month-old know that they go through a number of phases in life, Right? Right now, our 16-month-old is at the phase of life where he wants everything. Um, And when he was younger, you know, just a couple of months ago, um, we had taught him this wonderful little sign language thing, like when he would do this. So if he wanted more of something, he would kind of tap his hands together. It's very polite. It's very nice. It's very quiet. Um, That is what he would do. Um, but, But recently, no longer is he doing the little hand tap. You know what he's doing now? Ah, 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 and he wants everything. He has more food on his plate at times than I have on mine. But he wants whatever I've got. I I think about that, and I I think about, you know, oh, how cute that is and how funny it is and how annoying it is at times. Uh, But I think about that as it relates to human nature. He's not fettered by anything right now. That's what he does. But you know what? A lot of us live our lives making that same noise on the inside to God. We make that same noise. We, you know, we, we go home and we get the, the newspaper and we look at the ads and the paper and we go, ah, 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 I want one of those. We see what somebody else has and we go, ah, I want that too. We spend a lot of our lives wanting more things, whatever it is. What a tremendous gift it is for Christ to tell us that he is the one who is able to give or withhold all blessings. And he gives and withholds them according to the fact that he is holy and he's true. And he gives and withholds them according to his perfect time. That doesn't make sense to me, and I know that we could share stories, and, and you're immediately thinking of exceptions, right? What about this person? How come they don't have that? What about those that live in areas that where food is not plentiful? What does that say about that? You know, I, I don't even I don't even know how to answer all of those questions. The, you have those questions and I have those questions. But whatever the answer to that question is, it doesn't violate the truth of Revelation chapter 3. That Jesus has. All blessings at his disposal he's holy and true and he will open the door to whomever he pleases and that one day it'll all be right the church in Philadelphia was not experiencing prominence at the time the letter was written but one day possibly beyond the grave they would be a, a pillar in God's plan I don't know what is going on in your lives right now. I don't know what the issues that you're facing are, Uh, but no doubt, if you're like me, there are things that you want and there are, are situations that seem out of whack with what you would expect God to do in terms of blessing. But whatever the answer to that situation is, it must include us embracing this promise that Jesus is the one who is able to bless. And he will do it in the right way, and he will do it in his time. You know, we've seen today two more of the signatures of Christ in his letters to churches. And as we've seen those letters, we're, we're really beginning to see more and more that Jesus Christ is more than enough for all of our needs because he's offering us something better than anything we could ever hope, better than than external peace and better than excessive prosperity, Christ is offering to us victory beyond the grave, victory eternally even if not now. And He's offering us blessing from the one who is holy and true. In those ways it's really my prayer that all of us would see The person of Christ is more than enough for all of our needs. I I began the series last week with a quote from a professor of mine, John Hanna, who said that when he preaches, he wants to put a category in someone's mind called Christ. And if the Spirit would bless it to make it beautiful, that it would influence our affections, because people will choose what they like. We've seen now four different signatures of Christ. It's my prayer that the Spirit makes Jesus beautiful in our minds so that we would follow Him with our lives. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, and after I pray, uh, Greg Hill, our worship pastor, is going to come, and he's going to play a song for us in closing. A lot of times when we close, we close with a song that we all sing. Today, we're going to close with a song that he's going to lead for us. Uh, it's a beautiful song, uh, written by Stephen Curtis Chapman back in 1989 called More uh, to This Life. But it's just a reminder of the fact that though we see a lot, we don't see it all. And that there's more to this life than just living and dying because Christ has conquered the grave. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. And I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word Father, I pray that you would help us to see an accurate picture of who you are. Father, that as we see this accurate picture of who you are, that our hearts would be stirred and that our love for you would grow. Father, that we would respond to you more and more in faith and trust. Because you, Father, are the one who sent your Son to die for us and to conquer the grave for us so that we might live. And beyond that, to bless us with unbelievable blessing in this life and beyond, according to your good plan. We thank you, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.